With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We're fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. We start today's episode with a discussion about an exhibition April and I both recently saw at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City entitled Items is Fashion Modern. The exhibit, which closed in January of this year, was only the second ever clothing-related exhibition in the museum's 88-year history. The exhibition used 111 items of familiar clothing and accessories to explore the importance and cultural impact of apparel during the 20th and 21st centuries. Cass and I agree that this was a thought-provoking exhibition, but we did walk away with a bit of a shared reflection. Indeed. And that was that, despite its title, nowhere in the exhibition did it explicitly define fashion or address the incredibly rich and fascinating time period in which dress became modern. So in this week's episode, we offer a parallel dialogue to the MoMA's recent exhibition. Instead of asking, is fashion modern? April and I bring you an episode entitled, Freeing the Body, the Birth of Modern Dress. However, before we can move forward, there are a few important definitions we feel like we need to agree upon for the sake of this episode. For instance, what is the difference between fashion and dress? And what does the term modern really mean? On the surface, defining these words may seem like a fairly simple task, but when examined up close, they actually reveal themselves to be incredibly complex concepts. Take the words fashion and dress, for instance. These are two words that are often used interchangeably today, but they are actually quite different in their meaning, right, April? They are. And something really funny happened when I was visiting the exhibition, (laughs) (laughs) and it illustrates that point um, that you're making, which is um, one of the particular items in the show was this 1980s polar fleece sweatshirt. And I was standing near it when there was a young boy kind of wandered up. He was probably like seven or eight. And he stopped, and to the woman that was standing next to me, he he pointed to the sweatshirt, and he said, Mom, I don't think this is fashion. (laughs) (laughs) And I about fainted in delight. I think I texted you, actually. Yeah, you did. (laughs) Um, Instinctually, he had grasped the fact that not all garments inherently belong to this category called fashion. Right, and his reaction also is interesting because it demonstrates a defining element of fashion, which is change. That two-tone purple sweatshirt was fashionable in the 1980s. It's just not fashionable today. Wasn't it Shakespeare who said, fashion wears out more apparel than the man? (laughs) Yeah, gotta gotta love the bard. Um, And it's this constant desire for change to replace still useful objects with others perceived to be more in line with the current mode. This is at the core of fashion. It's really a complex system that can apply itself to lots of other aspects of the world around us besides clothing. This can include the colors of our home interiors, the model of the phone that you're carrying right now, even the types of food that we eat. We assemble our identities through our association with these things. So clothing is only one aspect of the fashion system, but one could argue that it's the most closely linked to our identities because of of the intimate nature and intimate proximity to our bodies. So this brings us to a point. If a piece of clothing falls outside of this temporary realm of desirability, we can put it under the umbrella term of dress, meaning things that we wear. However, not all the things that we wear are fashion. And as you've just demonstrated, not all fashion is dress. 
So that leaves us to define the word modern, April, which is a complicated term that can have multiple meanings and connotations. For instance, in the context of an art movement, modernism, with a capital M, refers to a discrete period from the rise of the Industrial Revolution during the 19th century up until the period just after the Second World War. But as the Museum of Modern Art pointed out, in a more informal usage, modern can also simply mean the times we live in now. So modern can refer to current times, but as the exhibition also pointed out, Modern can be used to indicate, quote, a relationship to a particular set of ideas that, at the time of their development, were new or even experimental. And it's this last definition that we are employing in our discussion of the birth of modern dress, a revolution, in fact, that occurred during a period in the early 20th century when women radically altered the way that they had been dressing for centuries. It is impossible to discuss the birth of modern dress, however, without first mentioning... The corset. (laughs) The corset. One of the most controversial garments in the history of fashion. Derived from the French word corps or bodice, the corset is an undergarment, typically bone and closed with laces, that helped to mold the wearer's body into the fashionable silhouette of the day. And for almost 400 years, this role remained largely unchanged. The corset was literally and figuratively the garment upon which women's, and even sometimes men's, fashion was built. The waist was both the main focal point of the silhouette and also the point of support for the outer garments. Well, no one person can be credited with its invention. The corset is generally believed to have emerged in the 16th century, where it was first worn by aristocratic women and even their young daughters in the courts of Europe. And really, since its inception, the corset was riddled with controversy. Records from the 16th century indicate an almost immediate condemnation of this newly adopted garment with some reports even going so far as claiming that tight lacing of the corset resulted in numerous deaths. Yeah, and one of the more macabre anecdotes that I have read dates to 1581, when this French surgeon, Ambrose Paré, claimed that a young woman, quote, being too bound and compressed in her wedding dress, came from the altar after having taken bread and wine in the accustomed manner, thinking to return to her place, fell rigidly dead from suffocation, end quote. But as fashion historian Valerie still points out in her wonderful book, The Corset, A Cultural History, the young girl's mother soon married her recently deceased daughter's husband. So perhaps, April, darker plots were afoot than the supposed vanities of women's fashion. Yeah, and similar cautionary stories and legends follow the corset throughout its history. In the 19th century, not only did numerous physicians continue to claim that tight lacing resulted in body deformation and death, They also credited it with causing any number of diseases. There was a whole dress reform movement that emerged from these health concerns that were swirling around the practice of corsetry. But women at large did not heed these doctors' warnings, and there's a whole variety of reasons for this, and we will get into those when we do a future episode that's dedicated solely to the history of the corset. So essentially because the corset had remained a fixture of women's dress for centuries— There was nothing modern about women's clothing in the 19th century, and this remained true at the beginning of the 20th. However, the dawn of the new century brought with it an appetite for experimentation and change that extended across the artistic spectrum. This was especially true in the cultural hub of Paris, where everyone from architects to dancers, musicians to painters, interior decorators to publishers, sought to reinvent their work upon the stage of a new century. And the field of fashion was no exception. It was 
During this first decade of the 1900s, that after centuries of stagnation, women's clothing finally underwent a dramatic transformation, and dress that we can call modern was born at the hands of avant-garde fashion designers. So obviously we're going to start with Chanel, right? (laughs) No. (laughs) You know that's one of my pet peeves as a fashion historian. I think you're just trying to bait me in order to prove a point. That's okay. I'll do it. Um, Chanel is certainly instrumental in many innovations that are still part of our modern fashion lexicon today. But there was also a whole group of designers before her who laid the foundation for the ideas on comfort and practical design that she would later make her hallmark. So around 1906-1907, years before Chanel opened her first clothing boutique in 1913, change was afoot. Not one, but several fashion designers began experimenting with designs that raised the waistline and no longer required the corset. This disposal of a 400-year-old staple of women's fashion was no small order, and almost all of our motley cast of early modern fashion designers want to take credit for it. And we will explore each of their unique contributions after a brief word from our sponsors. Before we go any further into this episode, we want to stress that the corset did not disappear from women's dress overnight. Rather, the designers that we are about to discuss, they laid the groundwork for women's fashion to continue progressing towards modernity, a change in dress that also reflected a larger shift in women's roles in society. Modern fashion was needed for the modern women who went to work in the millions during World War I and emerged from the war more determined to establish their independence than ever before. Okay, I'm going to admit that it'll become more and more apparent as the season progresses that I may or may not have a little bit of an infatuation with our first subject. That might be an understatement. (laughs) Uh, In fact, we have an entire episode in weeks to come dedicated solely to the man once described as both an egotistical genius and the king of fashion. So we're not going to delve too deep into his backstory here. Certainly one of the most colorful and controversial figures of fashion's past— Paul Poiret is also the designer most famously associated with revolutionizing fashion in the early 20th century. It's an accolade earned by his many innovations, but also by his unrivaled verbosity and master of self-promotion. Quote, It was the age of the corset. I waged war upon it, Poiret wrote in one of his three published memoirs. Quote, Like all great revolutions, that one had been made in the name of liberty to give free play to the abdomen. End quote. But he goes even further. It was equally in the name of liberty that I proclaimed the fall of the corset and the adoption of the brazier, which since then has won the day. Yes, I freed the bust. (laughs) Born in Paris in 1879, Paul Paré cut his teeth as a young fashion designer at the prestigious fashion houses of Doucet and Worth before he opened his own couture house in 1903. In 1905, he married a woman who would become his greatest model and muse, his wife Denise. It was Denise who appeared at a party in one of Poiret's corsetless gowns sometime around October of 1906. The following year, Poiret presented an entire collection of high-waisted, corset-free dresses, or maybe we should say corset-optional dresses, that were based on classical Greek and Roman ideals in dress. And this effectively shattered a century of dressmaking conventions that had come before him. Paré's dresses stood in stark contrast to the then-fashionable silhouette of the period, which was supported by a steel-boned corset that propelled the wearer's bust forward and her hips backwards. So this created kind of a beautiful, sinuous, albeit entirely unnatural, silhouette that became known as the S-curve, 
because of the figure's resemblance to the letter S. In contrast, Poiret's dresses, which were devoid of cumbersome petticoats and corsetry, fell from the model's shoulders in straight, columnar lines to reveal the wearer's natural body beneath. Not only did Poiret present a strikingly new silhouette, he did so within a riotous color palette of bold purples, reds, greens, and yellows, an expression of the nascent Orientalism for which he would become world famous. Where traditionally designers had relied on tailoring and complex pattern making to create a garment, Paré employed the art of draping directly on the body for his groundbreaking collection, a skill no doubt necessitated by the fact that he did not know how to sew. No, he did not. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of fashion designers out there who never learned how to sew. That's that's why you have people who work in your ateliers for yes. you. <laughs> um, but when you look at these dresses that we're talking about, Poiré's dresses from this time period, when you study them up close, they're actually really, really remarkable in their simplicity. They're basically just composed of rectangles of fabric sewn together. And in this way, their construction was inspired by the Japanese kimono and the Greek chiton more than any other traditional Western dressmaking techniques. And Poiré actually talks about this in one of his memoirs. Quote, while studying sculptures of ancient times, he recalled, I learned to use one point of support, the shoulders, where before me it had been the waist. All my gowns flowed from that point of support at the extremity of the shoulders and were never fastened at the waist. This new basic principle caused fashion to evolve toward classical antiquity. Fabrics flowed from this ideal point like water from a fountain and draped the body in a way that was entirely natural. I just love that. We cannot stress how revolutionary this was at this time. The shift in support of a woman's garment to the shoulders, when for centuries it had been the corseted waist, is one of the crowning hallmarks of modern fashion, to which our comfort largely remains indebted to today. Okay, Cass. Yes? I think I have a little bit of a bone to pick with your boy, Paré, and I think you know what's coming next. I think I probably have a guess. (laughs) (laughs) Paré would have us believe that from the very beginning of his career, he operated on the very cutting edge of fashion, and that he was the first to enact this dramatic change in women's dress. But this is simply not true. He made sure to tell us how much he abhorred the corset in all of its forms in his memoirs, but he conveniently forgets one teeny tiny fact. He promoted them. Sure did. In fact, as our research reveals, Paré was very much subscribing to the corseted, ground-sweeping silhouette of the period at a time when another designer was busy introducing the high-waisted silhouette in her winter 1905 collection, which was an entire year before Poiré. This revelation takes us to our next subject, the French fashion designer Jeanne Paquin. So this is interesting because it was actually Paquin who set the stage for Poiré's revolution. Poiré would never admit this, but he was probably not the first fashion designer experimenting with corset-free or corset-optional silhouettes. And this is especially fascinating because Jeanne Paquin is not a name we hear or read about a lot today, but she was one of the greatest fashion designers of her era. She was a head of a premier fashion house that was, at the time, one of the largest in the world. But before she was Jeanne Paquin, fashion designer and innovator, she was Jeanne-Marie Charlotte Beckers, born on the outskirts of Paris in June of 1869. As a young woman, Jeanne worked at a local dressmaker's shop before getting a job at Maison Ruth, a prominent fashion house of the period. It was walking to and from work at the Maison that she was spotted by her future husband, 
Isidore Paquin, who was immediately struck by her beauty. The couple married just one month after opening the Maison Paquin Couture House together in 1891, and they were partners in the truest sense of the word. Isidore managed the administrative side of the business, while Jeanne served as head designer. And by 1900, the House of Paquin was well-established as a preeminent fashion house, comparable with the likes of Worth and Doucet. Jeanne's mastery of color, her eye for layering fabrics and textures, the skillful nuance of her embellishments, well, that helped to earn the house a reputation as a leader of sophisticated French taste. And this was a fact underscored by Pecan's long list of affluent clientele that included royalty from across Europe. Part and parcel to Jeanne and Isidore's tremendous success was a keen business acumen and mastery of self-promotion. At the Exposition Universelle and Internationale in Paris in 1900, the 31-year-old Jen was chosen to head the fashion designer's exhibition and to also dress a 20-foot statue that stood atop the building at the exhibition's opening. Admirers could even order patterns for the statue's dress from the magazine La Mode Illustrée, just one of the many fashion magazines at the time that promoted Paquin as the latest word in chic. Harnessing the power of celebrity culture, the Pacans made sure to maintain high-profile relationships with the era's leading actresses who wore their designs both on and off stage. They were also among the first fashion houses to send models and actresses to the racetracks to advertise and gauge reactions to their latest designs. The racetrack at this time was very much the place to see and be seen. And it was within the network of this master publicity machine that Jeanne successfully launched an entirely new silhouette in 1905. In her winter collection, she revealed gowns with narrowed skirts and waistlines raised to just below the bust. Jeanne's new style was lauded in the press as the new directoire or empire line, so called because of the likeness of styles during the directoire and Napoleonic Empire era following the French Revolution. During this time in the 18th and early 19th centuries, women had similarly said goodbye to heavily constructed fashions in favor of high-waisted, flowing chemise gowns modeled on Grecian Roman dress. Today, we still use the term empire when referring to a high-waisted style of garment. Like Chanel after her, Jeanne was her own best model. A 1906 painting by the artist Henri Gervais entitled saint chez Paquin, or in English, Five O'Clock at the House of Paquin, this painting captures Jeanne and her busy showroom, among a swirling collage of her staff and her clientele. But it is Jeanne alone who models this empire silhouette. The ensembles of the women around her are immediately made passé by comparison. Young, beautiful, and active working woman, Jeanne designed clothing that she herself would wear, clothing that evolved along the principles of comfort and functionality. So, while these trademarks of modern dress are often credited to Poiret and even more so to Chanel, Paquin, herself a modern woman, was one of its earliest innovators. As fashion historian Jan Reeder points out in her work on Paquin, it was Jeanne's successful promotion of the neoclassical silhouette that laid the foundation for the acceptance of Poiret's more progressive designs of a few years later. While Paquin's designs presented a fairly dramatic change in silhouette, her Early models do still wear corsets, and she was always careful to really maintain an overall aesthetic that was keeping within the realm of accepted good taste and respectability. The same, however, cannot be said for Poiret, whose work was defined by its shock value. So as Reader points out, however, Poiret's, quote, genius was in grasping the moment in time when a more radical rendition of an already emerging sensibility would be accepted, 
then promoting it with an unparalleled flamboyance. Yeah, that yeah. <laughs> is true. <laughs> Absolutely flamboyant. Um, Jen's husband, he, Isidore, he died very early, sadly, in 1907. And after this, Jen ran the company by herself. But she eventually did partner with her half-brother, Henri Joire, and his wife, Suzanne, um, sometime around 1911. Together, this trio expanded the company into a fashion empire with branches in London, New York City, Buenos Aires, Madrid, um, all of this by 1914. In 1913, Jeanne became the first woman in history to receive the prestigious Légion d'honneur Award in commerce for her contributions to France's economy. And she was also the first woman to head the esteemed governing body of haute couture, the Chambre Syndicale. And she actually did this during the kind of contentious years of World War I. She did retire in 1920. Running parallel to Jeanne's success was another pioneering modern woman, the British designer Lady Lucille Duff Gordon. Lucille might already be familiar to many of our listeners as a survivor of the Titanic, but she was also an internationally revered designer of the early 20th century. More on her after this sponsor break. If Poiret was ever to meet his match, Lucille was it. Her undeniable creative talent was matched by an unwavering self-confidence and genius for self-promotion that went hand-in-hand with her success. Like Poiret, she wrote a memoir— just one. And in it, she takes credit for many innovations similarly claimed by her contemporary, including the end of the corset and the introduction of the bra. Quote, in those days, virtue was too often expressed by dowdiness, and I had no use for the dull, stiff-boned bodice brigade. Tell us how you really feel. (laughs) Quote, I brought in the brassiere in opposition to the hideous course of the time, which was distorting women's fashion. She was born Lucy Christiana Sutherland in London, in June of 1863. Lucille was creative and enterprising from an early age. She would make and sell dresses for her friends' dolls. She graduated from dolls to women's clothing in her teen years and made dresses for herself and her sister, the future novelist Eleanor Glynn. At the age of 18, Lucille married a man twice her age, with whom she had a daughter, Esma, but the marriage didn't last. The couple divorced in Lucille's early 20s after her husband left her for another woman. It's worth noting that divorce was still incredibly taboo at this time, and it was very much looked down upon, especially for upper-middle-class women such as Lucille. She was undeterred, and she was determined to support herself and her daughter, and she turned to dressmaking to make money, like a lot of women did. And she started a business in her mother's home where she and her daughter had moved after the marriage dissolved. Quote, I have often laughed looking back on those early days of Lucille, she recalled, remembering how the entire staff of the famous dressmaking house, which was to employ hundreds of workpeople, consisted of one little girl who used to cut out her models on the dining room floor with a watchful eye on the sticky fingers of her baby daughter. Certainly nobody could have begun in a smaller way than I did, without capital, without help of any sort, and with no advertisement except the gossip of the women whose dresses I made and who spread this pathetic story of the young wife who had been deserted and was trying to earn a living for herself and her little girl. More than a sob story, Lucille had incredible talent, drive, and passion for her work, and she quickly developed a clientele. She really set herself apart at the time by the care and effort she put into assessing each and every client's individual needs and really trying to reflect their personality in the garments that she created for them. She soon outgrew her mother's home, moved her business into a new premises, 
and Maison Lucille officially opened in 1894. By the end of the decade, she took on some financial supporters, one of whom was Sir Cosmo Duff Gordon, who became the love of her life and her husband in 1900. Despite operating outside the world fashion hub of Paris, Lucille nonetheless established a thriving business. And this was no doubt aided by the patronage of her friend and client, Lady Asquith, wife of the British Prime Minister. Lucille's name became synonymous with excruciatingly romantic dresses adorned with the softest, most delicate of feminine details. Quote, for me, there was a positive intoxication in taking yards of shimmering silks, laces airy as gossamer, and lengths of ribbon, delicate and rainbow-colored, said Lucille, and fashioning of them garments so lovely that they might have been worn by a princess in a fairy tale. Magical and seductive, Lucille prided herself on the allure and individuality of her designs, qualities she actually played up by giving each of her, quote, gowns of emotions, as she referred to them, names. And these were no ordinary names either. Many were references to love and sensuality. Some examples include, give me your heart, do you love me, or the sighing sound of lips unsatisfied. I love that one. (laughs) My personal favorite, though, is quite explicit. Um, In our collection at the Fashion Institute of Technology, we have um, a large collection of Lucille's original sketches. One of them is for a dress entitled her climax, which underscores her desire to extend the romance of her designs all the way into the bedroom. Yes. (laughs) Lucille took it upon herself to also give women's lingerie a makeover. She swapped out cumbersome and somewhat unattractive corsetry and other undergarments for sensual silk, chiffon, and lace confections. And this included the brassiere that revealed more of the wearer's body than ever before. She said... Quote, matchmaking mothers would stare anxiously at their daughters when I had dressed them in something that showed every line of their lithe young bodies and murmur, are you quite sure, dear Lady Duff Gordon, that this is not too suggestive? To which <laughs> Lucille would reply, as if there could be anything suggestive in youth and grace and beauty. Lucille counts among her many contributions to modern fashion, the evolution of the fashion show and the fashion model. And these were two newly instituted concepts in early 20th century fashion houses. By 1915, Lucille had branches of her business in London, Paris, New York City, Chicago. In 1916, she partnered with Sears and Roebuck to create one of the first designer ready-to-wear lines in history. Lucille's success continued into the early 1920s, when after a very public battle with her financial backers, she lost control of the very company she built from the literal ground floor of her mother's kitchen. So where the stars of Poiret, Paquin, and Lucille would all fade dramatically in the 1920s, our fourth and final subject rose to meteoric success during this period. And arguably the most technically gifted of our quartet of designers, her career was built on technical mastery and reverence for the natural form that would define fashion into the 1930s and continues to inspire many designers to this day. Born in Chaleur Bois, France in June of 1876, the future architect among dressmakers, Madeleine Vionnet began working in the clothing industry at the impressionable age of 12. At 18, she was briefly married to a man whom she had a child, but very sadly, the child passed away in infancy, and the marriage ended a short time later. This seems to be a common theme here in this episode. (laughs) Vionnet moved from London, where she found a job working for a royal court dressmaker, Kate Riley. But it was during her tenure at Calo Sur after moving back to Paris in 1900, 
that she really honed her skills, learning the art of draping directly on the body. In 1907, Vionnet made yet another change of employment to work for Jacques Doucet. And if that name sounds familiar to any of you, it's because Poiret also had worked for Doucet earlier in the decade. Alas, the two designers' paths never actually crossed there, but they were nonetheless aligned in their new vision for the modern new woman. Vionnet was quite peeved, actually, later in life with the attention afforded Poiret over the topic of the corset. It was I who got rid of corsets, she said in an interview. In 1907, I presented mannequins for the first time with bare feet and sandals. In another interview, she said, I have never been able to tolerate corsets myself. Why should I have inflicted them on other women? Viennese collection for Doucet was inspired by the avant-garde dancer Isadora Duncan, whose own costumes and performances were based on classical Greek art. And according to Viennese biographer Betty Kirk, the powerful Doucet saleswomen were so scandalized by Viennese collection that they refused to show it to their clientele. Like Paré, Viennese realized that the only way to have complete control over her designs was by opening her own fashion house, which she did in 1912. The house closed at the outbreak of World War I, but reopened at the war's end with a renewed emphasis on these classical ideals in dress. And these ideas would become a mainstay in her design philosophy. Whereas the fashionable silhouette had moved on from the high-waisted neoclassical silhouette of the pre-war era, Vionnet continued to explore the relationship between fabric and the body by experimenting with and eventually mastering the bias cut technique for which she would become famous. This method involves cutting fabric across the grain on a diagonal so as to emphasize the cling and drape quality of a fabric stretch. Cecil Beaton, a Vionnet admirer, called women dressed by Vionnet moving sculptures. In her hands, the female form found its purest and most natural expression in clothing that coated a woman's body like a second skin. Quote, my efforts have been directed towards freeing the material from the restrictions imposed on it. In just the same way that I have sought to liberate the female form, Vionnet said, I see both as injured victims, and I've proved that there is nothing more graceful than the sight of material hanging freely from the body. She was really a pioneer in more ways than one. Her goddaughter called her, quote, a feminist to the very depths of her soul. And she stands out among her contemporaries for her progressive labor practices and employee benefits that included health care and maternity leave. Vionnet's business far outlived that of her contemporaries, as did the designer herself. She closed her fashion house at the outbreak of World War II in 1939. She herself died in 1975 at the age of 99. Lucille Lady Duff Gordon died in 1935, followed by Jeanne Paquin in 1936 and Paul Poiret in 1944. So despite the large expanse of time that has passed between these designers' lives and today, their legacy still lives on in the clothing that you, April, and I all wear. Their early experimentations with corset-free, classically-inspired silhouettes heralded a new direction in women's fashion, one that promoted comfort, function, and mobility that we are all indebted to today. So next time you get dressed, perhaps you'll remember the legacy of these groundbreaking designers that endures in your very own wardrobe. Please follow us on Instagram for visuals that augment each week's episode at dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle. That's at dressed underscore podcast. If you'd like to email us, you can reach us at dressed at howstuffworks.com. 